members of the church. The members of the church, the people that belong to the church and people that believe in God. I think that might be for people who need a little bit of guidance. I definitely think not everyone needs to do the services. For people who believe, the point is some people won't accept an unbeliever to come in a church and, uh, and listen to the priest and everything like this. Therefore, God himself. Sunday morning church services are for the people who find comfort in that. And if that's where they find comfort in their beliefs, then they, they should go. could be meant for anyone, but whoever would be open to it. When you think of Sunday morning church services, who do you think those are for? I think they're for everybody, but I think that they're for the non-believers um, or those that are maybe lukewarm um, to continue to reinforce with them that the word is real and that it's true and um, to usher them to God. I mean, I think there's like two types of the spectrum typically. There's people who go because they fully embrace Jesus. I think there's also people on the different spectrum where they go because they use that as like their moral compass, like, oh, I go to church or I go to service every single Sunday. But in their day-to-day -day life, you don't really see them preaching or upholding the same values that they talk about in church. Yeah, just piggybacking off of that. I know like people just go to like church on Sundays as like routine, like that's just a part of who they are growing up, so. Sunday morning church services is for those who crave belonging, acceptance, who are raised to go to church on Sunday and get up feeling that they should. I think that's for all of us. I feel like it's a reminder of why we're really here and kind of gives everybody purpose in life. Every time I go to church, I feel like, you know what, like, it's not just about me. It's about everybody else. with us this morning. You all look lovely. Thank you for being here. Today, we're wrapping up our series, Love Like Jesus. Over the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at Micah 6.8, which is this invitation from the Old Testament for us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And then over the past couple of weeks, we've actually looked at how this has played out in Jesus' life with some really challenging topics. And what we've discovered, and you'll, if you'll remember, Sean Williams, he showed us this kind of three-legged stool that without all three of these postures, then our ability to love like Jesus falls. We need all three. And the reason why that's important for us to remember today is that we are tackling a really hard question. Who is the church for? But if we try to answer this question without that Jesus-centered posture, without those postures of humility, justice, and mercy, then I'm afraid our conversation could turn contentious. Instead, today, I'm inviting us to answer this question, who is the church for? with love like Jesus. See, our friends on the streets, they had some really interesting ideas about who the church was for, and they were all very different. Did you notice that? Some people, they said that the church is for those who are a part of the church community, people who already believe in Jesus. And then there were other people who said that the church is for people who are asking questions, maybe people who are looking for comfort or, or wanting to belong to a community. I like that that one guy even said that the church is for God himself. For something is really important to our faith as the church I think it's really interesting that we all have very different ideas about who the church is for. 
this question, I think it's actually been one of the most divisive questions for the church throughout history. And I actually believe that the biggest fault line in this question actually lies on generational difference. It's kind of this, this age-old argument about whose preferences are really going to win out in our church experience. Is it going to be the older, wiser generation who knows what they're doing? They're tried and true. They have the influence and the resources to make things happen. Or is it going to be that younger, wild, rebellious generation that just wants to do everything differently, but they have the energy and the vision to make things happen? Whose experiences are going to win out? See, asking the question, who is the church for? It's not a new question. These generational wars, they've been a hallmark of the church since its inception. And because we know that generational difference will divide a church, it's incredibly important for us to talk about this conversation. And so over the past couple of years here at Willow, we've, we've tried to get ahead of this conversation. And we call this guiding value, a guiding principle, we call it growing young. Because we recognize that if we don't begin building a church that young people actually want to be a part of, well then sooner or later, we are going to be irrelevant to them. But not surprisingly, the more that we've talked about this conversation, the more that we've talked about growing young and what it could really mean for us to build a church that young people actually want to be a part of, I, I think it started to make some of us uncomfortable. It's made us nervous because frankly, we're not all young anymore. And so when we say that we want to disproportionately invest in a, building a church that young people want to be a part of, well, I think a lot of us can feel left behind by that value. See, church, the truth of the matter is, is that growing young means that we are centering the experience of a group of people who are younger than you, which is really hard because younger than you, it really means not you. Willow, who is the church for? It's not just for you or for people like you, but if you'll stick with me here, I want to show you something about the posture of Jesus, an opportunity to love like Jesus that actually doesn't leave anyone feeling left behind by generational difference. It doesn't leave anyone feeling left behind by a church growing young. It actually is an invitation for all of us to be a part of a church bigger than ourselves. So will you pray with me and then we're going to dive in. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for gathering your church together again today. God, as we, we consider this question, who is your church for? God, may you guide our conversation. May you guide the words that I'm going to share with this church. God, and may you just bless our time together this morning. We love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. Well, I have always been fascinated by the 12 disciples of Jesus. They're just these like 12 regular kind of unassuming people who end up being handpicked by Jesus Christ himself to become the friends, the confidants, and the leaders of the entire movement of the gospel. See, Jesus, he was on a mission. 
Jesus was was here to save the world, to launch the kingdom of justice and mercy and humility that we've been talking about for weeks. Jesus, he was on the rescue mission of all rescue missions. He was here to save the world, and he invited these 12 people to have a front row seat. But more than that, Jesus knew that these disciples, that they would eventually carry the mission forward. That one day, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that these disciples, they would be the ones to carry the movement forward. They would be the ones to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to start the church. That these disciples, they would change the world. And now, if I was Jesus, and I had these really big plans to change the world, well, I would be on the hunt for some very impressive people to join my team. Like, I'd be looking for some people who had previous experience starting movements. I'd be looking for some people who could preach or lead worship, some people who could actually lead a church well. I'd be looking for some seasoned professionals who knew what they were doing. But that's not really the disciples that we read about in Scripture. Jesus, he ended up choosing some frankly unimpressive people to join his team and to lead his movement. In Matthew chapter 4, we learn how a few of these guys end up with Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, 18 through 22 reads like this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Four fishermen become the first disciples of Jesus. And now in all likelihood, these fishermen probably had little more than a primary education that would have wrapped up somewhere around their 15th birthday. And what's interesting, we just read it in the text, is that these fishermen, a couple of them were actually in a boat with their father, which signifies that they were still learning their craft. So we're not even talking about like master fishermen. We're just talking about undereducated, unremarkable fishermen. But perhaps the most fascinating thing for me to think about is how old the disciples were. In Matthew 17, it's a couple chapters past what we just read, we we learn about the disciple Peter, who we had just read about in the boat. And Peter is the only one of Jesus' disciples, along with Jesus himself, who's required to pay a temple tax. And a temple tax, we know, would have been required for any male over the age of 20 to pay. So why did only Peter have to pay? And throughout the rest of the Gospels, we learn that Peter is the only disciple that's mentioned to have had a wife. Which leads us to believe that the rest of the disciples were probably significantly younger than Peter. Most Jewish boys would have been married between the ages of 18 and 20. Now, I don't know about you, but the art and the movies that I have seen depicting the disciples of Jesus have led me to believe that the disciples were these like old men with long white beards. Anybody else? But that's not really the vibe I'm picking up in the text here. 
I think what we're reading should make us ask a different question. How old are the disciples? Well, while their exact age is hard to know, most scholars actually agree that the disciples of Jesus were young. They were very young. Most likely, the disciples of Jesus were in their mid to late teens and early 20s. They were kids. They were teenagers and young adults. And if I'm being honest, if I was on a mission to save the world, I don't think I would stack my team with a bunch of teenagers. Right? Like if I was here with the greatest mission of all time, I think I'd want some people that I could trust. And I don't know if I would trust that mission to a bunch of kids. And yet Jesus did. See, throughout scripture, Jesus, he spends a tremendous amount of time with these kids. He, he teaches them. He walks with them. He shares meals with them. And knowing what we do about the relationship between Jesus and his disciples, it's fair to say that Jesus spent a disproportionate amount investing in teenagers and 20-somethings. Why is that important to us? Well, because if we're trying to answer this question, who is the church for? Well, then we have to pay attention to the disproportionate amount that Jesus invested in young people. Jesus, he did more than just say he cares about young people or, or bless the little children from time to time. Jesus actually oriented his life around the discipleship of teenagers and 20-somethings. What we see in Jesus' life is a posture that actually models intergenerational relationships marked with empathy. I think we can all agree that intergenerational relationships are really important, especially for us younger people. I'm a, I'm a young person, I can attest to this. I need older, wiser people in my life. That's pretty obvious. But did you know that studies have actually shown that older adults with healthy relationships with young people are less likely to be depressed, have better physical health, have higher degrees of life satisfaction, are happier, and have more hope for the future? Science actually reinforces a posture that Jesus modeled, and that is that we need each other. But in today's generationally divided and me-focused environments, I would argue that empathy is actually what makes an intergenerational relationship works. So what is empathy? Stanford University Define, Design School defines empathy this way. They say that empathy is the work that you do to understand people. It's your effort to understand the way that they do things and why. Their physical and emotional needs, I would add their spiritual needs, how they think about the world and what is meaningful to them. See, empathy, it's about extending understanding when things don't feel natural to us. Around the holidays last year, I was chatting with a woman from our church, and we were talking about what I had been learning about intergenerational relationships and the importance of empathy in those relationships. And we had this idea, like, what if we gathered a group of people from different generations and just had a conversation, like, what could happen? And so I gathered a couple of young adults from our church, and, and she gathered a few older women from our church. And on a random Wednesday night, we sat in her dining room table, and we just had a conversation across generation. 
And at dinner, it was, it was really remarkable because I watched as, as seven women from different generations from our church engaged in this really beautiful and, and thought-provoking conversation about life and faith and Jesus and the church. But more than that, there was this like feeling of being understood at that table. It was like all of the judgment had been suspended and there was a desire to really listen to each other. Not just the words that people were sharing, but the heart, the experience behind it. It was empathy that permeated the entire conversation. See, empathy in relationships is all about feeling with someone. And as we were sharing at that dinner, these women who grew up in different decades, who were wearing different clothes, who had very different opinions about all sorts of things, they, they showed me that they cared about what I was saying. They, they displayed body language. They asked questions. They showed that they were excited when I was excited or that they felt pain when I was sharing something hard. See, empathy, it displays a kind of curiosity about people. And empathy, it's so key to intergenerational relationships because regardless of whether somebody is older or younger than you, there will be a time when you just don't get this other person. But see, empathy, it allows us to cut through generational differences around culture and values and even our clothes. And instead of needing to defend ourselves and our preferences and our choices, actually allows us to focus on the other person and engage with them with curiosity and love. See, empathy, it reminds us that we shouldn't discredit experiences that we've never had. Because empathy, it's not about us at all. It's always about the other person. Empathy is about seeking to understand somebody, not change them, understand them. So church, can I ask you, do you have relationships with people who belong to a different generation than you? And not just parent-child relationships or relationships with coworker. Are you intentionally being proximate to people who are of a different generation? And are you choosing to engage in those relationships with empathy? Are you asking questions? Are you seeking to understand their experience and their emotion and their perspectives? Are you seeking intergenerational relationships? We see Jesus... He modeled what it looks like to be in intergenerational relationships, marked with empathy. But remember that Jesus was on this mission. He was here to save the world. And so if we fast forward through the Gospels, we land at the book of Acts. And Acts is what happens right after Jesus' death and resurrection. And in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is actually about to ascend to the Father. And, and who do we find right there with Jesus? His disciples. They're still kids. They're still 20-somethings. And in Acts chapter 1, we hear the words of Jesus that he says to these disciples right before he ascends to heaven. Acts 1.8 reads like this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witness in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Church, did you catch what just happened there? Jesus is about to, to ascend into heaven, to be separated from the disciples. And he literally leaves the greatest news of all time, 
the gospel itself in the hands of a bunch of kids. What we see is Jesus empowering young people. See, Jesus, he took them seriously and he gave them this huge responsibility to further the kingdom on earth and literally start the church. But more than that, he equipped them through the power of the Holy Spirit. So Willow, if we are going to follow the postures of Jesus, then we too have to get serious about equipping and empowering young people for load-bearing roles. And not just because young people will be leading the church tomorrow, but because young people really could be partnering with us to lead the church today. See, I believe down to the tips of my toes that young people have incredible gifts to offer a community like ours. In my work with young adults and high school students here at our church, I've met some of the most talented and hardworking and spirit-anointed young people, and yet they're under-challenged. Teenagers and 20-somethings who are ready for someone to believe in them. And more than just believe in them, believe that the Holy Spirit is moving in them. Church, if we really believe that the Holy Spirit is moving in our church, then why don't we believe that it's moving in our kids and our students and our young people too? It's so hard to find someone who's willing to take a chance on a young person. See, empowering and equipping young people, it's risky and it takes a lot of work, but Jesus, he wasn't afraid to trust everything to young people, so why are we? Well, if I've learned anything about studying the differences between generations, it's just that, that we're very different. We grow up with different cultural influences, different parenting styles, essentially different worlds than the generations before or after us. So could it be that one of the reasons we are so afraid to entrust the church into the hands of young people is they might want to do something differently? I think we'd love to talk about innovation until we realize that innovation is just a fancy word for change. And change is hard. Nobody really likes change, but let's be honest. We're hesitant to give load-bearing responsibilities and leadership to young people because we know that they will want to change things. And if we're being honest, we don't always want them to change. I think sometimes we'd rather go back to how things were. But let me remind us, Willow, The glory days, they weren't sweet because of how we were moving our mission forward. The glory days were sweet because our mission was moving forward. See, church, it's never been about about buildings or lights or programs or stages. The church has always been about helping people understand who Jesus really is and seeing their lives transformed. And the church, it will always be about that. But how we help people understand who Jesus is, that will have to change. Kenda Dean is the professor of youth 
Church and Culture at Princeton Theological Seminary. And she has this quote, which I think sums up this idea really well. Kenda Dean says this, just how much of what we've learned to call church are we willing to let go of in order to follow Jesus? Just how much of what we've learned to call church are we willing to let go of in order to follow Jesus? Well, I believe that Jesus is always moving. But if we get stuck in what was, then I am afraid that we might miss the new thing that he could be bringing forward in us. And I believe that Jesus, he gives vision for his church to young people too. It just might look different than what we're used to. Willow, I think we're at a crossroads. And it's up to each of us to draw a line in the sand and say, I want to help build the church of the future, not rebuild the church of the past. But let me encourage us. Because we've done this before. Let me remind you of a group of young people who saw the widening gap between the experience of the church and the experience of young people, and they actually did something revolutionary to reach young people. See, 47 years ago, there was this group of teenagers and 20-somethings, and they were, they were huddled in a church basement. And they were talking about what was going on upstairs. Because see, the, these teenagers and these 20-somethings, they were experiencing the transformation of God in their life. But when they looked around at their friends, they realized that their friends weren't really understanding who Jesus was. And they, and they realized that the church, it just wasn't interesting to their friends. So how could they help their friends understand who Jesus really is if they couldn't even get their friends to come to church? And so these kids, they began to dream. They began to dream of a place where their friends could hear about Jesus in new and in fresh ways. A more culturally relevant and relatable way. A place where you could ask questions. A place where you could have doubts. A place where you could learn about Jesus without shame. A place where you could explore who Jesus is without pressure. These, these kids, they dreamed about a church for people far from God. But they did more than just dream. With the help of some truly empathetic adults in their life who believed in this vision, they began to build that dream. Now, these kids, they didn't have any money, which I think is actually the one thing that transcends generations. Young people, we just never have any money. These kids didn't have any money, so they gathered some tomatoes and they sold them door to door to fund their dream. And they, they began just meeting in this little church movie theater doing church in a movie theater, and people thought they were crazy. People actually thought they were doing church wrong because church in a movie theater, no one had ever done that before. A drum set during worship, no one had ever done that before. A drama skit during church, no one had ever done that before. People thought these kids were doing church wrong, but it didn't matter because these kids were seeing their friends understand who Jesus actually is. In this group of teenagers and young adults, they believed that everyone matters to God and that the church should be a place that helps people find and follow Jesus. 
and their vision to use their gifts to build a church for people who didn't know Jesus. It grew and it grew and it grew. And today, 47 years later, we are a part of the legacy of those teenagers and 20-somethings. Our church. Willow Creek Community Church was built on a vision of a group of kids who just wanted to grow the church young. And now if you're here today and you were one of those kids and teenagers, will you stand? Whether that is from the founding of our church, the theater days, or even the first 20 years of our church, will you stand so that we can honor you? Your faithfulness, your sacrifice, and your willingness to follow Jesus, it is the legacy that we all get to stand on. And I want to remind you that God is not done with your influence and your leadership here at our church. Willow, equipping and empowering young people is in our DNA. It's who we are. Our church started because a group of kids stepped out in faith to help people understand who Jesus actually is. And that same kind of energy, that same kind of challenge to the way things are, that willingness to try anything short of sin to help people know Jesus, it's alive and well in the young people of our church. Allowing church to be about a group of people other than ourselves, it's, it's risky. And it means that we're going to be uncomfortable and it means change. But if we begin building a church bigger than ourselves, I guarantee that the kids and the students and the young adults of our church will come up with some of the most crazy and radical and incredible ways that we can really be a church that is loving God, loving people, and changing the world in a way their friends want to be a part of too. So church... Who is that young person in your life that you need to empower? And more than that, what is that responsibility in the church and the kingdom of God that you have that it is time to start empowering a young person to have ownership in? How can you equip a young person to use their gifts in the church? See, Jesus, he invited young people into relationship with them. He, he trusted them with responsibility in his kingdom. And our church, it will be a better and stronger expression of what it means to follow Jesus when everyone, regardless of, of age or generation, is committed to being in intergenerational relationships infused with empathy and is being equipped and empowered to contribute to the kingdom. Willow, this isn't about us. It's never been about us. The church, it has always been about Jesus and helping people understand who Jesus actually is. And I'm confident that if we pursue these postures of Jesus, if we live how he's asking us to live, living out the values that he modeled by engaging with people with empathy, empowering and equipping each other for the kingdom, then we will really experience a fuller, and stronger reality of the kingdom of God today. Will you pray with me? 
God, we're so grateful for the vision of a, a group of teenagers and 20-somethings who just wanted to help their friends understand who you are. Thank you, Jesus, that 47 years later, we get to be a part of their legacy and we get to carry their legacy forward, continuing to be a church that is reaching the next generation. God, I pray that you will convict all of us, that we will, we will see the areas in our life where we can move closer to people of a different generation, where we can ask better questions, engage with empathy, and, and also how we can empower and equip those around us to be a part of what you're doing here. Jesus, this is your church. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. And God, may we continue to steward it well. We love you, and we pray this all in your name.